This morning we come to the end of Acts chapter 2. One of the most redemptive, historically significant chapters in all the Bible. Okay. We've talked a lot about redemptive history, and the whole Bible is at some level redemptive history. But Acts 2 is like the pinnacle of redemptive history in a very real sense. And the promised Holy Spirit has been poured out by the risen and exalted Messiah once and for all. And I know that in your hearts you're just saying, Amen, right? What a glorious reality. And what we have then in the pouring out of this eschatological spirit of God is the inauguration of the last days. That's, it, it's nothing short of that. You get the last days when that happens. The end times, as it were. And with this pouring out of the promised Holy Spirit and the inauguration of these last days, we have something else that goes along with all of that. We have the creation of this new end times eschatological people, which is what we are, which is who we are. So this morning, we come to the end, not only of chapter 2, but of Luke's description at the end of the chapter. He's got this summary set of verses where he describes the life of this end times people in the first days of their infancy. Okay? This is all new. This is all the pinnacle of history. We've been moving towards this moment for all these years. And now here we are, and now let's look at what's happening. That's what Luke's describing. Um, so we read in verses 46 to 47. And daily devoting themselves with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with, and I'm going to change these, this word here. I wish I would have done it in your handout, but with joy. And we'll come to that word later. And sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. I mean, you read this and obviously something special is going on. This is, you you, you read these descriptions, you're like, I want to be there. I'd like to be there in those days. Uh, It could almost seem, in fact, that everything was just like perfect. You know, like the golden days. Everything was ideal. And... We know, though, that soon enough, there will be pressures inside the church and outside the church. There's going to be sin and judgment within the community, Ananias and Sapphira. There's going to be grumbling about partiality and the distribution of food. Uh, There's going to be doctrinal controversy and debate where people are arguing about what's the way things should be now. And there's going to be interpersonal conflict. Remember Barnabas and Paul having a sharp disagreement. There's going to be persecution arising. But right now, everything's smooth sailing. Everything's just like, good. Here at the beginning, there's this wonderful sense of blessing and growth. Having said those things, the book of Acts is is often read, and, and this is where I just want us to maybe, hopefully we'll learn from this. It's often read and studied as this detailed blueprint for the life of the church today. So let's read Acts and let's, and let's do church. Like we see there. People speak of the desire, and this whole church is built around this concept, to return to the primitive 
experience and practice of the apostolic church. But was that Luke's intent? That's what we need to ask. Is that what he was intending when he wrote this history? Luke wrote this some 30 years after the things that he's writing about happened. So the question I would have for us today is, when Luke wrote this and recorded these events, was the entire church still in his day meeting every day at the temple? Do you think so? Well, maybe you could say, well, I don't know, but the guess is probably not. Probably not. Uh, Was the church throughout the Roman Empire still breaking bread from house to house, constantly taking their meals together? The picture we get here is like they couldn't get enough of each other's houses. Like they were living in each other's houses practically. That seems to be almost the picture. Did the church throughout the Roman Empire still have the same kind of favor with all the people? Like, Like the picture is everyone just loved the church. This was in Jerusalem. The people are Jews here particularly. Was the Lord still adding to their number daily thousands of people being saved in just a single city? Thousands of people. The answer to all those questions is probably no. And Luke's purpose in writing 30 years later and describing all that is not to say, hey, we've really fallen a long ways in 30 years. Let's go back and get the golden years again. We need to go back and recover that. When we read the Bible, this is where we can learn to see that redemptive, an understanding of redemptive history is really important. So the day of Pentecost is a day that we don't repeat in history. We don't get multiple Pentecosts because it was a redemptive historical moment. It's unrepeatable, with implications, certainly, for today, continuing reality. Even the first days and months of the church are just, by the nature of the case, unrepeatable. You can't go back and do it again. The entire apostolic period was unique and unrepeatable because the apostles are all dead now. They lived for a time, and now there's no more apostles. Having said that, Luke does expect that this history he's writing, the story of God's working in history, should have implications for our experience. Okay? And that's where we have to travel travel the road carefully, that we don't fall into this thing of, let's go back and get Acts and and make it today, okay? We have to watch how we do that and how we interpret. On the other hand, we shouldn't shouldn't say, oh, Acts was a long time ago, so it doesn't have implications. Clearly, Luke wrote this as, as something that would have implications for our experience of life today because we're still the end times people of God. That's who we are. If Acts in your handout, if it's not a detailed blueprint to be duplicated exactly, it is a spirit-inspired model that should guide us in your handout, should convict us, and should encourage us. So there's a little bit, that's what you call hermeneutics. It's like how to read the Bible, how to interpret the Bible. And that's very practical. Because again, and I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not bashing the church, but you, you have what is it, the Apostolic Church, right? Why is it called the Apostolic Church? There's there's other churches that are that are all focused on. We need this exactly as it was. This is the the detailed blueprint to be duplicated. 
that's a failure to reckon with redemptive history. And so that helps us as we approach it. So Luke begins in verse 46. Understanding that it does have powerful implications for us, we read, and daily devoting themselves. When you read your Bibles, meditate. Think on those words. What are the implications for us? It's the third time Luke has used this word to describe those first disciples. So it's like, he's, he's kind of saying this is a big deal. Chapter 1, they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Chapter 2, they were continually devoting themselves to the teaching of the apostles, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. And now Luke says again that they were daily devoting themselves. And we looked at this a little bit earlier, but when you think of the word devotion, devoting, what are the connotations that come to your mind? The, the Greek word means to persevere, to persist. We're not, we don't begin and not finish, right? We are those who begin and then persevere in that path, who persist in something devotedly in your handout with great care and effort. In our day, I wonder if devotion has come to be associated more with kind of a religious fanaticism, right? More than with that which should characterize all true Christians. So I'd love to ask each one of you, would, would you consider yourself to be a devoted Christian? Am I a devoted Christian? In our day, we might make a distinction between, oh, he was a really devoted Christian. And then there's all the other people who are just the norm. They're the normal Christians. And there's nothing, nothing to be ashamed about being a normal, normal Christian. But really, I think that's just our way of making, introducing this distinction between a class of carnal Christians. You know, Paul talked about a fleshly Christian, but he did not introduce the class of fleshly Christians or a class of spiritual Christians where we are all, we're all comfortable in either category. And yeah, it's nice to get in the other one. Devoted Christians are to be all Christians. Now, it's true that there's differences in spiritual maturity. We're all on different levels. We're all different places along the path, right? There's also differences in calling and, and in gifting. God has given different measures of grace and faith for different giftings. So we, we should be careful not to measure ourselves or others by the standard of the most spiritually mature. Because otherwise, you know, many of us and all of us at some level are all losers then. We should be careful not to measure ourselves by the standard of the most spiritually gifted. That can be something we, we fall into. And yet, on the other hand, every true Christian must be characterized ultimately by devotion. There are no such thing as non-devoted Christians. By a determination, that, that, that spirit-given determination. The Christian life is not just a joyful walking along the path, blown along by the winds of, of God's spirit that just makes everything easy. It's a determination, it's a devotion, independence on God's grace to persist and persevere with great care, with great effort to love God and love one another. 
in true obedience and holiness. I think of the word devotion and I think of something that implies an obedience that doesn't rest on changing feelings or circumstances. Instead, it's, it's a healthy sense of duty, which arises here from a wonderful sense of indebtedness. Right, so Luke intends that the devotion of those first disciples should be a model for you and a model for me. That's why he writes this. He sees this in this an example, that we should all of us be daily devoting ourselves to the living out of our faith. Now, I think for some, this is a rebuke and a warning. If you're not a devoted Christian, and if you think that there are others who are devoted and it's fine for you not to be, this is a warning because the Bible calls all of us to devotion. But I think this can also be freeing and empowering. And this is what I wanted to really emphasize. Because to the extent that you or I suppose that there are the devoted Christians and then there's me, right? There's, there's the really, what we were really saying by that is, there's all the spiritually mature Christians, and then there's me, the loser, right? I'm not like them. But when we realize that it's not about that, it's just about devotion, and we're all called to that, well, when we don't realize that, we set ourselves up for sin and failure and constant discouragement, because I guess I'm just not there. I guess, I'm just, I guess that's someone else's class. When we understand we're all called there, it can begin to make us experience a joy and a victory in our lives we didn't know before. It's kind of a strange thing, but I guess I'm just calling us to, to be encouraged that you're called to be devoted. And then to go out there and be devoted by the grace of God, persisting and persevering in love to God and love to your neighbor. Luke continues, and daily devoting themselves. Third time he used that phrase again. He wants us to get the, to get the, get the theme there. With one accord. Here again is another theme that we know he's emphasized. And we've seen it a couple of times. I'm just going to briefly read through these. He says in chapter 1, these all with one accord. We're continually devoting themselves there, that is, to prayer. Then he says, in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the brothers. A crowd of about 120 persons was together. And when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all together in the same place. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And the Lord was adding together daily those who were being saved. The congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Now at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were happening among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. It really adds up. You see this beautiful picture of unity. And here, here in our passage, Luke says, they were daily devoting themselves with one accord. Okay. The simple truth that emerges from all of that is you cannot be a devoted Christian apart from the community of God's people. It's impossible. One of the most basic expressions of any true devotion to Jesus is devotion to the body of Christ. And it's really, again, you may say, well, how can I be devoted? Well, this is a portion, this is a major expression of devotion, is gathering for worship. Devotion. Duty, in the best sense of that word. 
To be devoted by Christ is by definition to be devoted to the living of our lives together in community. Praying together. I mean, sometimes when I go to prayer meeting, I like to think of it as just, this is devotion. Taking the Lord's Supper together. Listening to the apostles' teaching together. Sharing together. Meal train, right? Part of devotion. That's devotion. I think sometimes a lot of the things that we do that are expressions of devotion, we would, we would get more even blessing from when we see it as that. It's an expression of devotion. Now, on the one hand, how do we devote ourselves to Christ? By devoting ourselves to his body. On the other hand, it is our experience of living life together in the body of Christ that enables me and empowers me to be devoted. It kind of just goes both ways. So I express devotion within the context of the body. And yet it's the context of the body that enables me to be devoted. This is the reality that Luke conveys to us. And these themes, these themes that are interwoven throughout Luke, daily devoting themselves with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. Okay, we're seeing this. These are the infant days of the church. And in those first days, it must have been amazing. All 3,000 plus of the new believers were meeting publicly every day. I I think, and commentators disagree, but I think they were all getting together every day. 3,000 plus people, Christians, getting together every day for, for church. In the temple. While smaller groups then were meeting every day in private homes. It's a beautiful thing. It was. So the temple in the time of Jesus and the apostles, it was, I didn't know this until this week, maybe I heard it somewhere, but it was the largest religious sanctuary in the world. Um, Because that's how Herod was. He wanted to build big things. And this temple was the biggest religious sanctuary in the world. So the entire temple uh, complex was 36 acres. So that's, that's 29 football fields you're looking at right there. 29 football fields. It was surrounded on all sides, as you see, by this huge covered porch or colonnade. And it was the part of this colonnade bordering the eastern side, which is the bottom side on this. That's the eastern side. So there's a... Well, you can see it up on the other... All the, the, well, I'm going to get messed up in my directions. So anyway... You see the porch in part of it, but down there in the bottom, in the eastern side, you can't see it. There's a porch there spanning that whole side that was called the Portico of Solomon, or Solomon's Porch. And that porch is so big, you can easily get 3,000 people in there for a meeting. Luke tells us in chapter 5, that's where Jesus walked when it tells us in the winter he was walking in Solomon's porch. We'll see other places through Acts where we'll see it in chapter 3 where they're in Solomon's portico. Um, And in Acts chapter 5, Luke says, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. So that's where they were. The believers met at the temple. Why? Because it was a convenient place. It was big. They could all get together at the same spot. But that wasn't the only reason. This is something we'll explore at some other places. But you might wonder, why are they still going to the temple? Aren't we done with the temple? Right? It's, It's done. So what's going on here? In in chapter 3, we're going to see Peter and John going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. 
Now, there's different reasons they might have been going up. I tend to think that one reason was to go up and pray at the temple. In chapter 22, Paul will say that after his conversion, he returned to Jerusalem. And what was he doing? Praying in the temple. We're all like, temple doesn't matter. Why are you praying there? That's, that's how, and of course, it's true at one level. Chapter 21, we'll see four believing Jews, four Christians, who are under a Nazarite vow, purifying themselves at the temple. Again, we'll talk about some of this later, but I just want to say this, and this is a really long sentence, and I guess maybe I was too lazy to chop it up. So try to put this together. Even though the temple had been fulfilled in Christ, and even though the disciples knew its days were numbered, because Jesus said it was going to be destroyed, for a little while longer, while the temple was still standing, And while the believers had not yet been entirely ostracized by their countrymen, because tensions are going to build more and more and more until really the temple is not a good place for the Christians anymore. And furthermore, in this unique redemptive historical period of transition, do you see how that helps us to understand things? So we can't say by this that, well, the Jews, it would be good for the Jews to build their temple again so they can go there and pray. No, we can't say that because we see this here. This was a unique, redemptive, historical moment of transition. And it was in that moment, that brief period of time, when attendance at the temple remained a natural, we could say an, inst- an instinctive. You don't take that out of the blood of, of Jews <laughs> after thousands of, after, well, 14, well, when was the temple built? A thousand years. And then the tabernacle, 1,400 years. You don't take that out of the blood in one day. So God's going to take care of that by destroying the temple. (laughs) But in the meantime, their attendance there remains an expression for the believing Jews. Not for Gentiles, but for the believing Jews. It remained an expression of their devotion to God. That's what Luke expects that we'll understand. And I wanted to say that because we might get a little bit tripped up at that. So this is why Luke tells us that they were daily devoting themselves with one accord in the temple. God, make me like that, right? We, we can respond to God's word with that simple prayer. Make me like that. Give me that devotion, that unity, that oneness. Today, no, we're not called to meet every day as a church. Are, are, are we less than they were because we're not meeting every day? We know it is not possible for all the church to be regularly worshiping together. Because it's we're geographically not possible, because doctrinal reasons too. I mean we might not we might like to go back to the days when in the early church where everyone agreed on baptism. We we can't do that anymore. So we don't agree with some brothers and sisters on baptism. Therefore it is appropriate that we have different congregations to worship according to our convictions. So, so again, there are some who say, look at Acts, we should be like that, and we should throw out all our desire to be doctrinally faithful on these other things that don't matter, right? As though they don't matter. They do matter. And so, so again, there was a redemptive historical moment here. We can't go back and recapture. God will recapture it for us. He will do it one day. And all the Presbyterians and Baptists will worship together in the same church. And we'll get it right. We'll know. We'll know what it was. Right. 
So, it's not possible for us to be meeting all together now, much less meeting at a temple. And yet, what do we learn? We are meant to see in this example of the early church a picture of that devotion and unity that should still be characterizing us as the end times people we are. If they were daily devoting themselves with one accord in the temple, I'd just ask, look, look, okay, so they're daily devoting themselves. Shouldn't we be equally fervent in weekly devoting ourselves with one accord, with one accord, in this true temple where we are all the living stones being built up into a holy sanctuary in the Lord? Devotion. Even as they were breaking bread from house to house, we should be a people who are finding spiritual refreshment and encouragement in each other's company. There's more, though, at work here than just what we ought to be doing. And here's, here's now where we come to this, this big moment, this big moment at the end of chapter 2. Underneath everything, the word I realized this morning, undergirding everything, permeating everything and overall, okay, is this deep, deep down, compelling and controlling joy. Okay. We've talked about duty and devotion and unity, and we've talked about a lot of things, prayer and money and possessions, but we come to the end of chapter 2, and the theme is joy. Isn't that what we've been seeing and feeling and sensing ever since verse 42? We see this experience of life in the church, and we're like, man, they're joyful. There's, there's, there's happiness. There's this, there's this underlying happiness here. What's going on in this new messianic community? Luke writes, And daily devoting themselves with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with joy and simplicity of heart, praising God. Yes. Now, I changed, gladness is word for joy. Well, anyway, let's, let's just move on. The word for joy here is a really strong word. And it could be translated in certain contexts with exultation. There was just an exultant feeling in the heart. The pairing of that word, now look at this. Exultation, what a big word that is. And then the, he pairs that word with this word simplicity. Kind of like, whoa, you got exultation and simplicity. Why putting those words together? We could translate, I believe, like this. And daily devoting themselves with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with hearts full of a simple, unaffected, even, we could say, a childlike exuberance and joy. You've seen a kid get excited, right? You've seen what it is for a child just in a simple, simple, humble, unaffected way to just be full of exuberance and joy and happiness. That's what we've got going on here. What a wonderfully fitting conclusion to all we've seen in chapter 2. That's what I loved about this. We've seen so much. And in the end, it produced joy. We've already seen some of Luke's unique emphases in his gospel, okay? Um, uh, 
We've talked about it. You look at the theme of something in, in a particular writer. Well, in Luke, Luke, more than Matthew and more than Mark, emphasizes the necessity of prayer for the coming of the kingdom. Luke also, more than Matthew and more than Mark, emphasizes the high, the, highlights the theme of wealth and possessions as those relate to life in Messiah's kingdom. Now, I believe this will be the last one we're going to see in our study through Acts. But it's Luke who emphasizes way more than Matthew and way more than Mark the theme of joy, which tells you just a little bit of something about Luke. Not that Matthew was not a joyful person, I'm not saying that, but Luke just wanted us to see the calling to joy. In connection with the coming of the kingdom. Because that's what's unique. You can read Psalms and see a lot about joy. Luke wants us to see the theme of joy in connection with the coming of Messiah's kingdom. A joy that we often see expressed in praising and blessing God. So, let's take a quick journey. Luke's birth narratives of John the Baptist and Jesus. uh, And then there's, there's all these songs that you have that accompany those narratives. They're only in Luke. You don't find them anywhere else in Matthew or Mark. Or John, of course. And it's in, these, it's in these opening narratives and songs that Luke begins right away to highlight this theme that he's going to sustain throughout his gospel of joy in the coming of the kingdom. This is what he wants us to see. He begins in Luke chapter 1. The angel Gabriel said to Zechariah, Do not be afraid, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name John. And you will have joy, kara, and gladness. This is the word that we have here in Acts. They were, taking, they were all taking their meals with gladness and simplicity of heart. Exultation. And many will rejoice at his birth. Three different times there. Why this joy, brothers and sisters? Why? Because John's birth was the sign of God visiting his people and accomplishing their redemption. That's why. That's why joy. Okay? When Mary went to visit her relative Elizabeth, and when Elizabeth heard her greeting, we know what happens now, don't we? Elizabeth cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for exultation. Joy. It's the same word. Why this joy in the baby who was still in Elizabeth's womb? Because this was the mother of the Messiah whose way he would prepare. Joy in a, in a baby in the womb in Luke. <laughs> Mary then responds to Elizabeth's words by singing a song, right? A song of praise that she begins with these words, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has exalted, has rejoiced in God my Savior. Same word we have here in Acts. Even if it's not the same word, there's other words that, again, we don't have to have the same word. It's the theme. Mary rejoiced because... God's mercy to her was the sign of his mercy to Israel and to Abraham and his seed forever. Joy. A few verses later, 
We read, now the time was fulfilled for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son, and her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had magnified his great mercy toward her. And they were rejoicing with her. Not simply because God had given her a child, and she who was barren now has a child, but because of this miraculous sign that this child was to prepare the way of the Lord. When finally the birth of Jesus was announced to the shepherds, what did the angels say to the shepherds? Do not be afraid. And I notice uh, when the angel said to Zechariah, it was the same thing. Do not be afraid and then joy. Do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Megas, mega, mega joy, right? Megas chara, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So the beginning of Luke's gospel, it's like a symphony of joy. That's maybe a good way to describe it. In particular, we could summarize those opening narratives as the proclamation not just of joy, but of what? Eschatological joy. This isn't just joy. It is eschatological joy. It is not just gladness. It is eschatological gladness. That's what's different here. So Luke is the only gospel writer who goes on to recount these things in chapter 10. Now the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. The sign of the kingdom, of, of, of the end times, the last days. Jesus said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. That had never been seen before. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. Not literally. These are the symbolizing the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nothing will cause you ultimate spiritual harm. Nevertheless, do not rejoice mainly in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But Jesus now commands us, brothers and sisters, he commands us to rejoice. And we ought to rejoice above all that my name is written in heaven. Rejoice now, okay? Practical application, start rejoicing. Your name is written in heaven. And immediately after Jesus called the disciples to rejoice... Luke includes a passage that he shares with Matthew. Matthew has the same passage, but Luke introduces it in a way that Matthew doesn't. Only Luke does this. At that very time, right after Jesus told them to rejoice, at that very time, Jesus rejoiced greatly. Jesus exalted in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Oh, the, the wisdom of God. So when Jesus calls us to rejoice that our names are written in heaven, what is he calling us to do? He's not calling you to rejoice while Jesus is all sober. No, you rejoice and share in the same joy that Jesus has. Jesus is joyful. Jesus' joy is an unbounded, exultant joy. That's what Luke would have us see. And so Luke alone is the one who tells us in chapter 13 
that the entire crowd was rejoicing. All this stuff is just in Luke. The entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by Jesus. Now this next passage, it's in Matthew. But the threefold emphasis on joy is only in Luke. Same thing. What man among you, if he has 100 sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. I think we've seen joy in the womb, and now we see joy in heaven. We see joy in places we might, we, that we can't see, but Luke reveals it to us by the Spirit. Only Luke, then, goes on to recount these parables that Jesus told of the lost coin and the prodigal son, only in Luke. This, what, what woman, if she has ten drachmas and loses one drachma, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the drachma which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The father of the prodigal son said to his older son, But we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and is alive and was lost and has been found. Only in Luke do we see this wonderful picture of angels rejoicing, of joy in heaven in the presence of God over the entrance of one single sinner into the kingdom of heaven. Luke alone tells the story of Zacchaeus and how he hurried and came down from the tree and received Jesus joyfully. Luke's account of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, that's in Mark, that's in Matthew. But only Luke, only Luke sounds explicitly the note of rejoicing. Now, as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God. Luke says, rejoicing with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Only Luke tells us that when Jesus appeared to the disciples after his resurrection, they still were not believing because of their joy. And finally, there's only Luke who ends his gospel with these last words. And it happened that while Jesus was blessing the disciples, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with mega joy, great joy, and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Now, what I want us to see here, let's put it together. The good news of great joy, remember the angel's announcement? The good news of megas kara, that the angels announced to the shepherds at the beginning of Luke, and then the shepherds glorifying and praising God for all that they had seen and heard. 
reaches its fulfillment at the end of Luke. In the great joy. Luke uses that reference, great joy, only twice in his gospel. At the beginning, when the angels announced the birth. At the end, when we see the disciples full of great joy. Because Jesus has ascended into heaven and taken his place at the right hand of the Father. And now they were continually in the temple blessing God. The joy that was in the opening birth narratives of Luke reaches its fulfillment in the joy of Christ resurrected and ascended into heaven. Now then, should it be a surprise to us that when Luke picks up his pen to write volume two, he's not suddenly done and finished with that theme of joy. The first reference to joy in Acts which we get some different words here because he's quoting the Greek Septuagint. But the first reference to joy in Acts is a reference, not to our joy, not to the disciples' joy, but to the joy of Jesus. The first reference to joy in Acts is the joy of Jesus. Acts chapter 2. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue exulted. Moreover, My flesh also will live in hope, because you will not forsake my soul to Hades, nor give your Holy One over to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Once again, our joy is simply a participation in the boundless, exultant joy of Jesus himself. Any true joy you've ever had is just a taste of the joy of Jesus. The joy of Jesus resurrected from the dead and ascended into the presence of God sitting at his right hand. That's that's the only true joy there is. And it's the taste of that joy that we've been given today by the Spirit. It's only when viewed within this eschatological context. Is that not exciting to you now? We read Acts, if we don't read it in the context of eschatology, we will never get it. Never come close. It's only then when we read it in this context can we understand Luke's now, I should. I have to qualify. I'm just excited, okay? There, if someone doesn't know about eschatology and all these things, they can read Acts and benefit greatly and grow and, and be joyful. But you won't get it fully. Then it's only in this context we can understand Luke's reference at the end of chapter 2 to the disciples' hearts being full of a simple, unaffected, even a childlike, exuberance and joy put it simply this isn't just joy it's eschatological joy that's what it is and there and there's a redemptive historical and therefore a qualitative difference between all other joy and this joy this isn't just gladness this is eschatological gladness It's a gladness that has arrived now and had not arrived before. Over and over again in the prophet Isaiah, it was said that the coming age of the Messiah 
would be characterized uniquely and supremely by joy. And I didn't even give you all the references there. I mean, Isaiah is just loaded with joy. But you know, all of Isaiah's joy is projected into the future. One day, he says, joy. And the prophets Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Joel, the coming age of the Messiah would be the age of the Spirit poured out on God's people. So the coming age is the age of joy, and the coming age is the age of the Spirit. Interesting, right? What do we learn in the New Testament? The fruit of the Spirit is joy. In Romans chapter 14, Paul speaks of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul speaks of the joy of the Holy Spirit. And we've already seen in Luke 10 how Jesus, Jesus himself rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. Later in Acts, in chapter 13, Luke will tell us that the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Let me put it this way then. As an eschatological people, filled now with the eschatological spirit of Christ, we have been given the gift of eschatological joy. You may say, well, I don't feel joyful right now. It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. You've been given the gift of the eschatological spirit, which is to say you've been given the gift of eschatological joy in these realities that have now been accomplished. They are yours. And knowing these things, we rejoice. So in Acts chapter 5, we'll see the apostles doing what? Rejoicing, they considered worthy to suffer shame for the name. In Acts 8, Luke will tell us that after Christ was preached in Samaria, there was mega joy in that city. Later in chapter 8, we'll see the Ethiopian eunuch after he was, after, you know, Philip came and preached Christ from Isaiah 53. He goes on his way rejoicing after believing the good news about Jesus. We always have a reason for joy. In Acts chapter 11, Luke will tell us that Barnabas rejoiced when he saw the grace of God and the salvation of the Gentiles. In Acts 13, Luke tells us that the Gentiles began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord when they learned that the Messiah's salvation was to be sent to them. Later in chapter 13, we see the disciples were continually filled with joy. In Acts 15, Barnabas and Paul were bringing mega joy, great joy to all the brothers when they were recounting in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And then finally, similar to the Ethiopian eunuch, we had the Philippian jailer. Luke tells us that he rejoiced greatly with his whole household. Because why? Because he had believed in God. There's always a reason to rejoice. As an eschatological people, filled with the eschatological spirit, we've been given the gift of eschatological joy, which is a joy 
that depends not on changing circumstances, does it? Because I didn't believe in Jesus yesterday and don't believe in him today. I have the same reason for joy today as I did yesterday. Christ has preached to me last week and now he's preached to me this week. I have the same reason for joy because he continues to be preached to me. It's this simple, it's not based on changing circumstances, but on the abiding presence of the Spirit of Christ in us. And it's this simple childlike joy in the Holy Spirit then, which is to be the overriding, controlling principle of my life. Not bouncing around all the time, pretending that there's no pain in the world. No, but this overriding, undergirding, controlling principle. We're not controlled by our grief. We're not controlled by our sorrows. We're controlled by joy. It's this joy in the Holy Spirit, which is to characterize especially our experience of life together as Messiah's people. And it's this joy in the Holy Spirit, which enables us to persevere. Even in the midst of sorrows that we still experience in a fallen world. This is not a sticking our heads in the sand. And yet even, even let me put it this way, even as the Spirit, the Spirit is himself the pledge of the fullness of our inheritance, which is yet to come, so also the joy that you have today the joy that you know today because you've believed in Jesus and because Christ has preached to you, the joy of the kingdom of, of the end times, the last days that we live in, that joy that you have now in the Holy Spirit is already the guarantee within you, the guarantee already existing, living within you of that day when all sorrow and all sighing will flee away. In the end, then, it is the expression of our joy in true devotion and unity. What is our devotion? What is our unity? It's the outworking of our joy. And it's as our devotion and unity is the outworking of our joy that we are to have a powerful witness to the world around us. Luke concludes, just put it together, and daily devoting themselves with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with joy. And when Luke writes joy, we know he means eschatological joy. With joy and simplicity, I, I think simplicity is better there, Simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor and having favor with all the people. There was an outward uh, look to this. And the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. So many things we can already have hopefully taken from this in terms of uh, uh, the relevance of it to our daily lives to our life as a community. I would just conclude with these three things. By God's grace, may we be a church always characterized by a simple childlike joy.
There's a lot of other alternatives, none of which are attractive. Let's be a, let's be a people characterized by joy. May it be this joy that finds expression in our daily devoting ourselves to Christ our King and to one another. And may it be this joy that always, to borrow a word that Paul uses elsewhere, that always adorns our witness and testimony to the world. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, what a glorious, glorious thing is joy. This gift that you have given to us, and not just any joy, but eschatological joy. The joy of the last days. The joy of Christ in us. The joy of having believed in the Messiah. The joy of having each week Christ preached to us. Oh Lord, we praise you and we thank you for this joy and for all the reasons that we have for it. Father, we pray that that would be this joy that is expressed, that is that is behind all of our devotion, all of our oneness, all of our love and unity. Lord, do a work in us by your Spirit. We pray that you would enable this, this joy to be a to adorn our witness to the world. That we are not perceived as a people as a people who, who don't have joy. I pray, Lord, too, that you would enable this joy to be truly the controlling principle of our lives. So that even in the midst of real griefs and sorrows, and even just crying out and weeping, and, and, yet, and yet underneath that, and even in one sense undergirding that, is the joy we have in Jesus. Father, help us as we sing now. Help us as we take this meal. What reason for, for exultation is in this meal? Um, and as we do these things together, may you, may you be glorified in your people. In Jesus' name, amen.